My wife and I, Jackie, are really massive fans of a show on Netflix called The Patriot Act, uh, hosted by Hassan Minaj. Hassan Minaj is a comedian and a political commentator, and uh, Patriot Act is a great platform for his talents. Um, in each episode, he takes a, a different uh, area of uh, injustice or corruption in life today, whether it's corporate greed or government corruption or the manipulative power of technology. And he uses his journalistic insights and skills to kind of blow it open. He does it with incredible uh, wit and insight, but also it's great entertainment as well. Now the show is, uh, it's, it's, it's a comedy in some way, so it has an optimistic tone. But as the episodes go on, the seasons go on, you, you can't help but feel a bit overwhelmed. The sheer enormity of the issues presented kind of have a paralyzing effect. Because the truth is that it makes you aware that we are only um, understand or know of a fraction of the evil and injustice that occurs on a global basis, a tiny amount. And even a smaller fraction of that is actually brought to justice. The, the victims are, um, uh, have, uh, are redeemed and, and, the, and the perpetrators um, face up to their crimes. The world has a justice problem. Wrongs need to be righted. Victims need to be vindicated. Uh, the wrongdoing should be punished. But as we saw last week, the, the systems of injustice, or, or the beasts, as Revelation puts it, uh, are so intertwined with our lives, with the, the state of the world, that uh, it's, it seems almost impossible for them to be, to be really um, dealt with. And since we give our allegiance to them on a daily basis, often without knowing it, you know, we, we find ourselves intertwined with the very problem that we have a problem with. So our justice problem is, is much more than just the evil out there, it's also the evil in here. How can we see justice brought into our world without putting ourselves in the docks? Revelation 15 and 16 are full of really disturbing images of judgment and they read a bit like a waking nightmare. But actually in them, we find a solution to our justice problem. Because they reveal a way in which God will judge evil justly. Wrongdoing will be punished. But not only that, we see a way for unjust people to receive mercy. Here we see justice and mercy come together. And to understand this fully, we need to see how these judgments are presented in three ways. They are punishments, they are warnings, and they are mercies. Punishments, warnings, and mercies. So first, how are they punishments? Well, the theme of divine judgment um, is woven all the way through the book of Revelation. Uh, but it's portrayed most clearly in three scenes in the vision. Two we've already covered, um, the opening of the seven seals and the blowing of the seven trumpets, you might remember. But here we see the third in chapter 15, uh, the pouring out of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Now, like with most of Revelation, these seven bowls and seven plagues, uh, they are metaphorical. 
Uh, the seas won't ever really turn to blood and there won't be a literal global darkness. But if they aren't literal, then what are they? Well, they symbolize the worst fears of humanity, the things we are most afraid of, terrified of, but amplified like um, many, many, many times in order to make the reader, us, sit up and take notice of what's going on. There are natural disasters pictured here, disease, earthquakes, storms. And there are man-made disasters, um, invasion, wars. And there are disasters that combine both when human action creates ecological distress. Now these plagues aren't meant to be taken chronologically. They're not, they won't happen one after the other, through one through seven, no. They, they should be taken as a picture of a distressed world. A revelation reveals that these plagues are acts of judgment. What does that mean? Well, notice in 16 verse 4, we have the oceans and the rivers and the springs of the world turned to blood. And an angel proclaims, you are just, God, in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. The point is that a merciless people who are quick to violence against each other, both with word and with weapon, will invite violence on themselves. Now the focus here is how Christians have been persecuted in brutal ways throughout the centuries and continue to be today, but we can expand that out to how humanity has always been driven by pride and fear and greed to rip and tear at each other. The point is that those who promote violence invite violence on themselves. Uh, then we continue with the waters then become polluted. And in 16 verses 8 to 9, the sun turns from this life-giving warmth to a scorching, searing heat. This reminds us of the final trumpet back in chapter 10, which is declared to be a judgment for those who destroy the earth. The point here is that God gave humanity a task of not just caring for each other, as human beings, but caring and nurturing for the world as stewards. But instead, we have consistently exploited the world over and over again through the centuries. So as one writer puts it, the outcome will be that humanity will reap the bitter harvest they have sown. The earth itself will begin to turn on us. And that day actually started a long time ago but it's only gotten worse and worse and worse. People who destroy creation will ultimately be destroyed by creation. These judgments of violence and terror are justice for how humanity has done terrible things both to itself and also to its global home. And it seems that most often God's role in these judgments are indirect. He doesn't personally cause every tsunami and every bushfire, but he allows them to happen as the just deserts for the people who rejected his rule and exploited his world. 
Now, if you ever had a reason to really seriously consider these things, then this year, 2020, is the year to do it, right? The world is suffering for a global pandemic. Wildfires and bushfires of unheard of ferocity are lit. A stockpile of chemicals in Beirut just explodes out of nowhere, and a thousand other disasters of various degrees happening all the time. And it should drive people to ask, why? Why are these things happening? Well, if you take God out of the equation, the only answer we have left is, well, why not? There's no rhyme or reason. Things just happen. Sometimes there's an obvious cause, sometimes not. Maybe we can try and better our situation, but maybe we won't. There are no guarantees. But the goal of Revelation is to uh, bring God into the equation and therefore give a much fuller explanation for the distress the world has always experienced and continues to experience ever worse and worse. That, that God meets our punishment to those who have wronged his world as part of his commitment to justice. Sometimes directly through specific acts of retribution like those in the Bible, but far more often indirectly as he allows humanity to reap its own bitter harvest. So the judgments here are punishments. They're just punishments. But similar to our own justice system, punishments uh, don't just punish, they also act as warnings. So that's what these judgments also are. They're warnings. We've said multiple times now uh, through this series that the primary place to interpret Revelation is not our news feeds, but the Old Testament. And as we went through these seven plagues and seven bowls, maybe some of you were like, this sounds a bit familiar, or it should. Do you remember the ten plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus? God sent on Egypt uh, painful sores, turned the Nile to blood, darkness covered the land. Revelation 15 is actually a retelling of the Exodus story, but blown up to encompass not just a single country, but the whole world. The plagues came on Egypt uh, because of the systemic injustice that Pharaoh was committing against the Israelites. Each plague was worse than the previous one, right up until the final plague that claimed the lives of Egypt's firstborn sons. Over and over again, Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to relent until the very last plague when he did let Israel go, but then he went back on his word and pursued them to the Red Sea. The plagues were warnings to Pharaoh that he was dealing with a God who would not allow injustice to go unmet. Each plague warned him to stop, to relent, to repent, to turn, to change. The seven bowls of wrath in Revelation work exactly the same way. But not just for one ruler, but for everyone who lives on this world. God works through disaster and distress to sound an alarm. The alarm sounds through every wicked act, from the least, like a lie told for, the, for a bit of profit at someone else's expense, to the greatest, like a war waged to seize power 
and resources. The alarm sounds to wake humanity up to the message of God that being complicit in the beastly power of evil, even if it's out of ignorance, tars everyone with guilt and dishonor. The alarm of judgment has been sounding for millennia. And as the centuries roll on, its, its volume is increasing. It's never been more shrill than right now. The plagues uh, show an escalation of calamity right up until the final bowl, an, an earth and hailstorm like none before it. it. That's a symbol of the second to last judgment before judgment day, when God will judge every human being one last time. Until that day, every judgment serves as a warning to the world. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like those who refuse to heed God's message and stubbornly continue to do wrong. Turn and repent before it is too late. In that way, judgments, and not just punishments, and actually not even just warnings, but mercies. Because they don't just warn of impending doom, they point to a way out. So how are their mercies? Well, every episode of um, Hassan Minaj's Patriot Act ends with an appeal. A real uh, a creative challenge or suggestion for people to speak up and act out against corruption. Uh, and they're brilliant. They're often really wonderful and great uh, things to suggest. So they're really, it's really good at that. But um, we get all these invitations all the time, don't we? from government campaigns to non-for-profits to journalists, or let's all try and be better. Let's all try a bit harder to be kinder, more aware, braver. And we need these challenges, we do. Uh, they come from people and groups with amazing creativity and resources to help us make good decisions that minimize the harm we can cause. They're gifts of God in that way. It's always better that someone does something to push back a bit of beastliness than to give themselves completely over to it. But a bigger question does remain. Is it enough? Is it enough to, to cover for our own inadequacies? Is it enough to really save the world from itself? Can, can anyone's life truly be unentangled completely from evil? This week I read an article about a woman uh, who had volunteered to trial one of the coronavirus vaccines, I'm not sure which one. Uh, she ended up, ended up having second thoughts because she found herself faced with a dilemma. See, she knew that her participation might help save countless lives. But she also realized that it might also contribute to corporations who stand to make billions of dollars and, and may well actually prioritize the vaccine going first to one group rather than to another. And she felt really uncomfortable about this, and uh, like she was stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's a good example of how, even with the best of intentions, it's, still, it's really impossible to stay untarnished by injustice. The Bible is actually massively pessimistic about our own ability to bring about justice. 
and even more pessimistic about our ability to stay morally clean, ethically clean. But it is insanely optimistic that nonetheless the world will have justice. But it will be God who does it. It will be God who saves, not us. And in fact, it will happen in spite of us. Revelation tells us that there will come a day when God will eradicate all injustice and evil. A final judgment, and we'll talk about that in a few more weeks. 16 verse 15 gives us a little glimpse of what that day will be like. Verse 15, look, I come like a thief, says Jesus. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Just as no one knows when a thief might come to rob your house, the final day of judgment will come at a moment when no one expects. Just like that, we will all be before Christ on his throne. And we will see him as he is described in Revelation chapter 1, as an avenging warrior with a sword of judgment. Verse 15 deliberately echoes the story of Adam and Eve we heard read before. Adam and Eve's sin in taking and eating the forbidden fruit was that their desire for that fruit was greater, became greater than their love and allegiance to God. That single act initiated an addictive pattern where people's desire for things overcomes their love for God, for others, and for the world. It created a greedy, grasping, ruthless people. And the result was for Adam and Eve that they suddenly felt naked and ashamed. It wasn't just that they were embarrassed because of their like, physical nudity. No, they were suddenly aware of their spiritual exposure. That their sin, their, their injustice towards God was like a neon sign advertising their dishonor. They instinctively wanted to hide and cover themselves. And I think most people still live like that. Hiding and covering from others and from God so that they might not be exposed. Just like Adam and Eve, we try and sew together a makeshift morality of good deeds and decisions so that no one might see how we are complicit in the very things that we cry out against. Anything to make us feel like we are on the right side of justice. But friends, the problem is that God is not fooled. He wasn't in the garden and he is not today. God sees everyone exactly as they are. Every decision, every thought, every word, every action, every motivation. Everything that was done that shouldn't have been done. Everything that wasn't done that should have been done. See, shame doesn't actually motivate people to do good very well. It does a little bit, but not very well. It actually motivates people more to hide their bad, to cover it up and stuff it down. It kind of works because it kind of keeps the guilt and shame at bay a bit as we compound our good deeds. But it's always there, that shame just bubbling away under the surface, our feeling of not enoughness, our feeling of lack. What kind of life is that? Well, it's a life that finds it 
almost impossible to put aside the self and act justly for the good of others. Because even just actions are really done just to provide an extra bit of covering. It's a life that breeds measliness, a lack of compassion, a lack of mercy. It's an empty and shallow life, a shade of what it should be. And it's a life that cannot stand before the final judgment, when every human will be shown up for exactly what they are. But here are the mercies of God. Notice that the appeal to be clothed from Jesus comes right between the sixth and last judgment. And the placement is deliberate because as long as these words can still be read, the final judgment has not yet come. Every moment that God's patience persists in holding back that final day is a moment of mercy for people to respond to his appeal. Not an appeal to just be a bit better, but an appeal to find clothes that will truly cover our shame. Jesus says, Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Who are these people who are awake and clothed? Well, we see them at the beginning of chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God. And they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Here's the Exodus story continuing to be retold, not just with plagues and judgments, but with God's people standing tall on the other side, on the other side of the sea, on the other side of judgment. They have been sheltered from the plagues of Egypt and the plagues on humanity, and they have passed safely through. What was it that sheltered them from their plagues? Do you remember? Of course, it was the Passover lamb. The lamb killed and its blood painted on their houses so that God's judgment might pass over them. They were, in a way, clothed with its blood. Who clothes? What clothes? The victorious people of Revelation? Well, we saw it back in chapter 7. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. The only clothes that could cover up our shame were those soaked in the blood of God's perfect spotless lamb. And it's no coincidence that these final plagues mirror what happened the moment Jesus died on the cross. A darkness covers the land, an earthquake shook the city, and as the seventh angel shouts, It is done! Jesus cried, It is finished! And he took the full measure of God's judgment on himself. Jesus died literally naked and exposed, representing our spiritual exposure and nakedness. He took it on his own straining shoulders. He took our shame so that we could have his honor. He took our complicity in evil so that we could have his innocence and his holiness. Here on the cross, God's mercy and justice are brought together. Justice is served because the price has been paid. Mercy is demonstrated because it is paid on our behalf. 
for those who trust in this, who grasp this, is like being given a brand new set of pure white clothes. God treats them as he treats Jesus, just as righteous, just as innocent, just as flawless as he is, as if they had lived his life. And on that last day, they will stand before God without shame because I know that judgment has passed them over. So God's appeal every second of every day before the last day is that men and women will wake up to their plight and fall at the foot of the cross to come to Jesus in humility, repenting of what they have done and asking to have their shame covered. This means everything for the final judgment. It means that just as God cried innocent over his son when he resurrected him, so Jesus will cry innocent over those that he resurrects to eternal life with him, those who have claimed his grace. Does it mean that Christians then can just sit back and watch the world burn, safe in the knowledge of their ticket to heaven? I've, I've heard that very thing said uh, by uh, non-Christians before to me. Is that true? No, far from it, actually. So Christians are actually able to act more justly and rightly as a result of being recipients of God's mercy. More justly, more rightly, not less. Notice Jesus says, Blessed is the one who remains clothed. Who remains clothed, remains awake. In other words, the person who is really blessed person who's really flourishing in life is the person who is always aware of the mercy God has given them in Christ. That person will not just flourish, but extend flourishing to others. You see, those who haven't been given the clothes of Christ's righteousness will only ever do just enough good deeds to make themselves feel in the right. The more they good they do, the more prideful they may well become and inevitably become more concerned with their reputation. And they may well do good in some ways, but be really quite beastly in others. But those who have received Christ's righteousness, though they will be free to do good deeds simply because they love God. And they love His world. They love the people He has made. They're free to work hard, to care for the poor, Speak up against corruption. Love those who are unloved. Care for our environment. Not trying to prove themselves because they have already been proven. They've already been through the fire. They have received mercy so they will be compelled to show mercy to others. And the ongoing judgments of God and history won't make them afraid. Won't make them despair. But spur them on to proclaim the gospel of Jesus all the more because the clock is ticking. So here is God's appeal to us all. Be clothed and be awake. For our church, will we be a community that works together to act justly and to proclaim God's mercy? Will our lives show that in the everyday? And for those who... Uh, Trust in Jesus. Will we make the most of these days before final judgment? Will we be half awake and a bit sleepy? Or will we be fully awake and aware and active as much as God makes us able? 
And for those here who might not yet believe and trust in Jesus, will you heed the warnings of God's judgment? Will you find in Jesus the only covering that will be enough on the last day? Will you come into his blessedness, into his flourishing? Will you come and fall at the foot of the cross of Jesus where he died for you to provide a way through these judgments and even the final one to come? All this reminds me so much of a great song that we're going to sing in a little bit. That, uh, one of the verses, Naked come to you for dress, Helpless look to you for grace, Stained by sin, to you I cry, Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Let me pray and then give you a moment uh, to spend some time in reflection and you can send through questions that I'll try and respond to in a little bit. Gracious Father, we know that your judgments are justly deserved by this world and by the people you've made. For we have sinned and fallen short and done what is wrong. We have erred. We are deeply flawed. And yet we thank you for your prevailing mercy. That even through judgment you show and provide a way through. And that way is the cross of Jesus. And so I ask, Father, that we would... Um, for perhaps for the first time, perhaps for first time for a long time, or perhaps just as part of our spiritual disciplines for another day, for the cross of Jesus, come humbly and gratefully to you to fall more in love with this Jesus who has covered our nakedness and shame with his own righteousness so that we could stand before you every day and also on the last day. Amen.